We're going to read from Luke 24, Luke 24, beginning at verse 44. Make that Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Church, the passage begins with the death of Jesus with it's the sixth hour, midday, and darkness falls on the land. Now imagine you're in the bright blue uh, Middle Eastern sky morning, you know, a cloudless day probably, and it's noon, and all of a sudden, the sky grows dark. And with all of the events that have taken place, the crucifying of Jesus, can you imagine how the people are responding? How they are thinking, whoa, what is going on? Can you imagine that some of those chief priests and religious leaders behind this crucifixion were given pause and maybe grew a little bit nervous. I bet you Pilate was nervous. And and those soldiers and the crowds there, they were thinking, you know, there's no storm mentioned here. You know, no rainstorm, just the sky becomes black at noon. For three hours, church, I take it that at that moment that God in heaven takes the sin of the world and places it upon Jesus, and the sky becomes black. It's as if God is saying, you know, well might the sun hide its face when Jesus Christ bears our sin because of an event like this. Uh, It's as if God is underscoring the magnitude of this moment. Church, when you think about the greatest events in biblical history, The top three over everything else have to be the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, and then the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus, those three incredible events. And we celebrate the incarnation every Christmas. We're doing it now. We're preparing for Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus when God becomes flesh. And then we celebrate every Easter the resurrection of Jesus when he bursts forth from the grave, defeated death, 
uh, validating who he is. We celebrate that. But church, in many ways, the greatest miracle of all is the cross of Christ when Jesus, our Savior, dies and bears our sin. I mean, it is really no surprise that Jesus, the author of life, the source of life, the resurrection and the life, uh, rises from the dead. We would expect that. But for God, the creator and source of all life, to die, the sinless, holy, sovereign Son of God, to die? I mean, whoa. Wonder of wonders. It's a wonder, as Philip Yancey says, that the whole universe did not stop in his tracks in that moment. But God, at least, he veils the sun, puts darkness over the land to mark this moment. There is a, there is a book that's about 500 years old that talks about the cross of Christ, and there's a marvelous title. It's John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Now, isn't that a great title? In the death of Christ, there was the death of death because sin was paid for, and sin is what leads to death. And in the death of Christ, we have the death of death. Death is defeated on the cross. So the whole sky becomes dark from noon to three. And then there's more because in the next line we read, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, can you imagine this? You're up on the temple mount, high above the city. And there is this gleaming, white, magnificent Herod's temple there. And it symbolizes the presence of Almighty God in the universe. And when you go in, there is the Holy of Holies. And, and then you, or the holy place, and then you go behind this curtain. Well, actually, no one went behind that curtain except the high priest once a year. But if you go behind that curtain, there is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And there is the Ark of the Covenant. And the place representing the presence of God on earth where sin is atoned for. And only one man, the high priest, could go there, and only once a year. And when he went in there, to represent the people, they tied a rope to his ankle. Because if he goes in there and has a heart attack or something, nobody else can go in. they got to pull him out. Uh, and the whole point of that temple curtain was to represent the barrier because of our sin between man and God. In fact, I'd say this. If there was one dominant note in the Old Testament about our relationship with God, it would be one of distance. God is the holy God, and we are sinful man, and there is a barrier because of our sin. There is distance between a holy God. But when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, can you imagine that that curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom because it is God tearing it, not man? Church, the curtain was six inches thick. It was beautifully embroidered. It was 30 feet across the width of the temple. It was 60 feet high, about as high as this building. And it separated the barrier from the holy place and the holy of holies. Man, nobody goes back there. This is God, the holy God's presence on earth. Church, can you imagine 
a handful of priests probably being in the temple at that time. And all of a sudden they whirl around and they hear the temple curtain torn, being torn in two and nobody's there. Whoa, what in the world is God happening? And God is saying that this curtain that has hung for centuries symbolizing the holy God and the barrier between man and God, that God is saying the curtain is torn. The barrier is being ripped apart. And now you have access to God because the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins. Church, all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, none of them really paid for sin. None of them. How could the, the blood of a lamb or, a, or a, a cow cover the sins and pay for the sins of a human being made in the image of God? It cannot happen. But those animals were sacrificed, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. They were sacrificed as a pointer to one day the Lamb of God who could atone for sin would step out of heaven and come to earth and he would bear our sin. Church, when that happens, God takes the curtain in the temple and rips it in two. He's saying to us, the way is open. If the dominant note of the Old Testament about God was distance, the dominant note in the New Testament about God is nearness. God came near in Jesus. Friends, we call him Papa. We're adopted as his kids. All of our sins are forgiven in Christ, not because of what we've done. We believe in a Savior. We believe in a gospel. We believe in grace. We believe in amazing grace. We sing it. We believe in it. And we're blood-bought kids frolicking before our Father and enjoying life with Him. Church, live in light of the grace of God because the curtain has been torn. Sin has been paid for. Live it. Uh, there's more. Uh, then Jesus, verse 46, calling out with a loud voice, with this cold, I can't really do justice to this, but Jesus on the cross calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, and having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus, I said last week, seven sayings from the cross, three of which are recorded in Luke. Uh, it's time to die. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is quoting the Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 31, probably a Davidic psalm, David's psalm. Uh, this was his prayer as well as David. Uh, I, I could look it up, see if it's David or somebody else who was trusting God with his life. And Jesus, his, uh, the prayer book of the Psalms is the prayer book of Jesus. In fact, Tim Keller has a recent book out on the Psalms, and he calls it um, uh, the Songs of Jesus or the Prayers of Jesus. We got a handful in our bookstore. Maybe they're gone now. But, but this is the prayer of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, friends, Jesus is deciding when to die. Nobody takes his life from him. Some of you perhaps have seen the classic movie Spartacus. If you have, you recall that some of those... Um, men who were crucified in the movie, some of those slave rebels, they hung on the cross for days alive, suffering. And that's what happened. You would uh, survive for several days, but not Jesus. 
Because after six hours on the cross, Jesus decides he has borne our sin. He's paid for our sin. Now it's time to die. He chooses when to die. He reigns from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is a prayer of trust. The earlier prayer recorded by Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? He doesn't call God Father for the only time in the Gospels. Because at that moment, he is burying our sin. And there is a distance between God and Jesus for the first time ever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here, he's born our sin. He's ready to die. He's ready to go home to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, Jesus teaches you and I how to die. Die this way. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When it comes your time to die, die with that prayer in your heart. In fact, devout Jews... They pray this prayer every night, every evening before bed. I think I might start doing that. It's a good idea. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit tonight. Jesus is dying with trust in his Father. And that is how to die. Father, I trust you. You know, not long after this, in the early church, we had the first Christian martyr. First Christian follower of Christ who who was killed because of his faith. Who was that? Who was that, church? Stephen. Do you remember what Stephen prays when he dies? He is being stoned. He has forgiveness too. He he mimics what Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And then he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And uh, it's interesting. He's following the example of Jesus, but but he's twisting it a little bit. He's changing a little bit. Not praying to the Father, but praying to Jesus. Because Jesus is God, and we can pray to him too. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus is teaching you and me how to die. The curtain is torn in two. Jesus is praying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last. The Roman centurion is standing there. The Roman centurion is over the soldiers. And he immediately turns and says, Truly, this man is innocent. This man was innocent. Matthew's gospel tells us that he also said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now think with me. What happened with that soldier who had led the group to to crucify him? What happened that all of a sudden, this is the Son of God? Well, think with me. Think how this man had seen hundreds and hundreds of people die. In fact, many with his own hand. Think how uh, he had watched people die. He knew how people died. Have you watched someone die before? Um, Maybe once or twice in our lifetime that happens. We're in a room in which someone dies and we hear the rattle in the throat. But here is a man who had watched countless people die. But he's never seen someone like this die. He's never seen someone like Jesus who dies with complete peace with complete confidence in God, with complete trust, uh, with forgiveness in his heart, with as if he was reigning from the cross. He'd never seen someone die like that. And, And he heard his words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's heard his words. He has looked into his eyes. He's standing right there close to him. And he concludes, that is no mere man. That is the Son of God. And he gives confession to what 
Luke would want every reader to confess, truly, he is the Son of God. Now, there's one more character at the cross that we need to, to, to look at. We see him in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Now, the council is the supreme court, the Sanhedrin. Seventy august officials, important men. Joseph was one of those. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. What a great phrase. Is that true for you? Are you looking for the kingdom of God? Are you praying? I know you are because we pray it every week here. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, he's looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, that was a very um, brave thing to do. He had been a secret disciple up until this point because the Jews would kick him out of the Sanhedrin. They would kick him out of the synagogue. His life might be in danger. I mean, and he um, had been a secret follower of Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, and Joseph chooses to go public as a follower of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, the Roman governor. Can I have that body? I want to prepare his body for burial and put him in my tomb. Usually, if you were crucified in the Roman Empire, you would have no individual burial. They would leave you out in the open as a warning to what happens to rebels. And the vultures would pick at you. Sorry. Or they would uh, set you on fire and call you a Roman streetlight. But not Joseph. He is saying, enough is enough. I am going public that, that I am a follower of Jesus. I believe in him. And he goes to, to Pilate, asks for the body, carefully prepares it, and then takes it to his tomb in which no one had ever laid. Church, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, the highlight in my judgment is to go to the, the garden tomb, one of the two places where the traditional sites where Jesus most likely was crucified and then nearby was buried. And to walk in the tomb there in which only one person was buried and it fits all the qualifications. And of course, there are no bones there now. But to go in there and imagine that might be the very place where Jesus was buried after paying for my sins. And he burst out of that grave on the third day. It's an amazing thing. He gets the body and with courageous, courageous uh, um, actions that could have exposed him to all kind of problems. He buries him. It would be a little bit like you're at Nuremberg, Germany in 1946 and following, and uh, one of the, the hated war criminals there is executed, and you go ask for the body. You know, you, just, you don't want to be associated. But, but, but Joseph is saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus. If he was alive today in our world, he'd be sending out uh, you know, a social media post, hashtag stand up for Jesus. And I hope that is your spirit today because there will be people who will laugh at your faith or who will mock your faith or who would uh, perhaps turn away from you because of your faith. People at work, people in your family, maybe during the holidays. But I hope you too have the courage of Joseph. You're going to stand up for Jesus no matter what. You will own your loyalty to Jesus. Church, what do we see in our passage? This simple passage about the death of Jesus. 
on the cross. Well, we see Joseph's example. The courage to stand up and not shrink back and hide your faith. Hey, can I pray for, can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Can I reach out to you? Inviting them, uh, praying for your top five in any and every way, uh, not shrinking back in embarrassment because of your loyalty to Christ. You also see how to die and how to live and how to face the problems and the challenges of life the way Jesus did, trusting God, trusting the Father. Church, think about what's going on in the world today and all of the fear and trepidation because of global terrorism and everything that's going on. You are a follower of Christ. You do not give way to fear and hate and anger. But you've got the living God in you, and you have God's perspectives, and you have the perspective of faith. Father, into your hands I trust you for these challenges of life. And we're not naive about the dangers, but we face them, uh, we face our fears with faith and full of love, praying for the kingdom of God, praying for God's uh, uh, hand to come down upon our country and around the world. That's how we face the problems and the challenges the uh, uh, all around us, like Jesus did. And then perhaps, more than anything else, church, we get what happens when Jesus dies, when the, when the sun turned, uh, when, the, when the sky turned dark, when the temple curtain was torn, when uh, the centurion cried out, truly this is the Son of God, we get what happens. Jesus died in our place for our sin as our Savior. And he took care of our sin problem. You know, think about it, church. Um, the whole point of the gospel, the whole basic concept of the gospel uh, is the simple English word substitute. You know the word because when you were growing up in school and your teacher got sick, you had a substitute to take her place. Uh, those of us who are sports fans, we're following the Texans a few weeks ago. And our quarterback, Brian Hoyer, uh, gets injured. And we have a substitute quarterback, T.J. Yates, who comes in and plays for him. And when our, several weeks before that, when our star running back, Arian Foster, gets injured, we have um, a substitute running back, Alfred Blue, comes in. We're all hoping that J.J. Watt, our star, doesn't go down and we need a substitute for him. Um, we understand substitutes in all of the major sports. In fact, several years ago when the Astros moved from the National League to the American League, the basic difference in the leagues is that in the American League, the pitcher has a substitute hitter every time he comes up for bat. The pitchers in the American League, they don't hit because they can't hit very good. And they have a substitute every time their at bat comes up. We call him a designated hitter. Church, we get the concept of substitute. But it is at the very center of the biblical story. It is at the heart of the gospel. God says, when it comes to life and death and eternity, and the greatest problem that we ever face, our sin problem, the, the, the rift, the barrier between God and man because of our sin, he says, there will be a substitute for you. I myself, God the Son, will come down to this planet, and he will hang on a cross and about noon, God took all of your sins that you would ever commit everything, every word, action, attitude, and he placed them on Jesus. 
and Jesus paid for them. Either you pay for them for all eternity or Jesus pays for them. And you say, yay, God, I receive a Savior. You know, the only difference with all the sports today and the substitutes, the coach makes that call, but you've got to make the call. Will you take a substitute? Will you have a substitute? Will you trust a substitute? Or will you trust yourself to be good enough to earn your way to heaven? The problem is, at best, you're going to only bat about 300. Seven out of ten times, you're going to fail. But you've got a substitute who bats a thousand. And every hit's a home run. And God says to you, rather than hit, would you let a substitute come in and take your place? Church, that's what the Bible calls grace. It's a gift. Amazing grace. A sweet to sound. A saved to rest. I mean, it is stranger than anything in fiction. And it is the very truth of the gospel. Jesus came to be your substitute. And you can just say, yay, God, yay, God, for grace. If you have trusted Christ as your substitute, as your Savior, then live in that grace and the freedom and the joy and the response of love to God. If you are here and you thought that this whole thing was about being good enough, oh, church, you can never be good enough. The whole thing is the grace of God. And you say, oh, Jesus, come and save me. Be my substitute. And he will. Would you stand with me, please? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you breathe a prayer now and say, Jesus, come and save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Church, if you've done that, then live your life for him. He is worthy of your complete surrender and full obedience. Give him your life. Lord, thank you so much. Amen.